From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Many Georgians are familiar with the iconic movies made here. There's Driving Miss Daisy, Fried Green Tomatoes, and Who Can Forget the Famous Bus Stop in Forrest Gump, filmed in Chippewa Square in Savannah. But it wasn't until the state legislature passed the Georgia Entertainment Industry Investment Act in 2008 that the state stepped into the spotlight as the Hollywood of the South. Yollywood, if you will. Jamila Nuruddin is an actor and producer who got her start in Georgia before the boom. She's among those featured at the Macon Film Festival this weekend, and she's going to be joining the Making Room at the Table panel. It's about women in Georgia's film industry at the festival tomorrow, but joins us now from Los Angeles. Jamila, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We should note that Kalina Buller of GBB's podcast, The Credits, will be moderating that panel. But I want to talk about you. First of all, how you got here, producer, editor, actor. And you started with acting at the age of 12. Do I have that right? You do. You do. I, I, it was an amazing story because the very first acting class I actually ever went to, I heard about an open call for a role they were casting at the then Family Channel station. And I went, and out of 500 girls all over the uh, United States, I was one of the ones selected and immediately started working in Atlanta as a, as a child actor. So what was that like, auditioning at 12? You know, it was surprisingly easy <laughs> for me just because I was, I've always been kind of comfortable speaking in front of people. And so it was very effortless for me to just kind of c- to connect. And I was around a lot of amazing actors at a young age. I worked with Don Cheadle and Cicely Tyson, Irma P. Hall, all when I was, you know, 12, uh, 14. And I just learned from them. And so it became pretty, it became almost a, a relaxation, uh, a sense of joy and relaxation for me to act. Okay, we went a little deep cut and have a clip of you. This is from A Lesson Before Dying, TV movie adaptation of the Ernest Gaines novel. When you worked with Don Cheadle and Cicely Tyson, let's hear. Stop stop that noise, please. Jefferson, her cousin, Mr. Wiggins. I know that, Irene. What is it like listening to that now, remembering you at that age? Oh my gosh, the memories are flooding back. Um, just the, we were on a real sugarcane plantation, uh, for the set. We were on a, it was amazing. And just hearing, hearing the laughter in the room, we, there was a deep connection with all of the, the kids. And it was just a tight crew and tight cast. And it's just amazing to hear it. <laughs> and, and you got hooked, it sounds like. I did. I did. I got hooked. And from there, I started really getting into I went to a performing arts high school in Atlanta, Pebble Brook High School. And I got very deep into theater and Shakespeare and the classics. And that led me right on into my adult life. And I got a degree, actually, a BFA in theater at USC right after that. So So what was the appeal of theater, live theater over film for you? Well, it's interesting theater, there's less help. Like, it's very easy to see whether someone, you know, you either have it or you don't, is sort of the way I've always been told in theater. Like, there's no hiding it. Whereas with, uh, you know, film, you can do take after take after take to get that one performance that is strong, and that's all that the audience sees. So theater's a little bit more, you know, it's out there. Mm -hmm. you got to bring it every time. There's no do-overs. And uh, for that reason, it, it, when you work on theater, it just brings you chops. Like you just have this depth you can pull from 
to get to where you need to go immediately as an actor. But you also did make a transition or you did some work behind the camera or behind the stage set, I guess we would say, for theater. Eventually getting into producing and editing and won Best Film Editor at the Women's Independent Film Festival. This was back in 2015 for Why I Dance. First of all, tell us a little bit about that film. It was about women pole dancers, right? Yes, it is. It's about women pole dancing, but it's actually about so much more. It's about women reclaiming their bodies. This was just pre the Me Too movement, but it was very much of that same vein of of women owning their bodies and their and its innate sensual power for themselves without the um the need for approval or acceptance or, you know, we, we all know when we look at advertising and things like that, just how much women are sort of objectified in our society, just on a purely <laughs> just cultural basis. And to have women of all different shapes and sizes, ages, backgrounds, just uh, owning themselves, it was a very moving piece. We got international press off of that. It went viral, that video. Um, and then went on to win a lot of awards just because I think at that time we hadn't seen women really reclaiming themselves with the pole involved. You mm. know, it's a very controversial <laughs> um, thing. But yeah. Okay, so that went viral. That was it. That was a huge hit. Got a lot of notice and attention. And this is a film about women in in the tr- you know the pole dancing trade. Women, of course, statistically a huge part of the movie-going audience. We know more than 51%. But did people look at that and think, oh, that's a women's film? You know, that's not going to get distribution. You know, what kind of conversations were there around the topic for you? The conversation, it included men. Men felt very honored to see women expressing themselves this way. I think it brought men to a place of recognizing that if the women in their lives felt good about themselves, how much better their lives would be if women were more secure in our society. So it truly does have this ripple effect. Women connect deeply to it because they recognize that freedom that you have when you're a child, when you're a little girl, where you don't judge your body, you just love your body. And I think men were able to respect the fact that this is something that has been taken from adult women or women, you know, prepubescent women, where you, there is this scrutiny that we have. And I felt I found that most men were very celebratory, a little uneasy at first. Like, am I supposed to, you know, most of the time when you see a beautiful woman or a pole, you think that's for the man, the male gaze, and they're supposed to find that, you know, attractive. But once they realize it's about her, not about me, they were able to just revel in the beauty of femininity, which is something we all can appreciate. My guest is the actor and Atlanta native Jamila Nuruddin. She's coming back to the Peach State this weekend for the Macon Film Festival, which is going on all weekend. Well, I want to hear more about that. You're joining this panel, Making Room at the Table, Women in Georgia's Film Industry. Your work has involved elevating female voices for a long time. Is that something that you intentionally wanted to do, get involved with women in filmmaking? Or is it just that projects came along to you and you wanted to be a part of them? That's interesting. It was a it was a mix. It, it began just... I've always cared about marginalized voices and the unheard voices. That has always interested me most in filmmaking. And through the people and the company I've been keeping, I've, I've been moved to produce and edit and act and dance in projects that really uh, underline that for women. So the, the marginalized voices was intentional, but the fact that I've been centered on femininity and women has been... 
a little accidental. It's just been a, because of the projects that have come across the table uh, for me, and I've said yes. <laughs> well, and and you're saying yes to this panel because we're looking at a hundred top grossing films of 2018, 4% of the, those were directed by women, 15% writers, 3% of cinematographers. So let's say for the population and the audience, woefully underrepresented. And how curious about the kind of conversations that you have with your colleagues about that. Does it feel like you're wrestling against a system? It does. It does feel like a system, and it's a system that we are all a part of. I want to say first and foremost, it's not like there's just some big bad man there that's, you know, pushing people. I mean, maybe there is, but it's more that we are all complicit in this view of a successful filmmaker being a white man. That's just the view that we've had because that's what's been. People want to hire more women. They want to have more diversity. But there's a lack of representation when you start looking at people's credits. Because of the way things have been, women, you know, female directors, for instance, they don't have as many credits necessarily um, as a male counterpart might have. And so it's almost like people have to take that chance um, in order to give a female DP, a female editor, a shot in order to have more inclusion. But the truth is we need these voices. Projects are better when you have more representation in the uh, at the top level, kind of deciding how the story is told. It will be more a more effective story. And that's the point I keep driving home is that this isn't charity. This is literally to make uh, the highest form of art. Yeah. And diversity sells films with casts that were from 31 to 40 percent minority received the highest median global box office receipts that oh. same year, 2018. Also seeing a study, this is a 2017 study, that women will turn off a film or TV show if too stereotyped or lacking in female characters. So, you know, you're trying to make a case that reality sells on some level. <laughs> but if you don't have the credits, I mean, you're, you're somewhat established. You've got credits behind you. How does someone get a start or what encourages them to get a start in the business if they're facing an uphill battle? You know, I think it's community. Um, I think film communities with the Internet and everything that it can do now, we're starting to see these little pockets of community forming. And I had the pleasure of going to Sundance Film Festival for the last two years. And I've been moved almost to tears at meeting like the stereotypical, you know, rich white Jewish man producer with tons of credits. Um, who has leaned into me and literally said, you know, I, I want to hire more women. Do you know? I want to hire more female directors. Do you know any? And it's like there's this desire. I think young film female filmmakers need to realize that there is a desire for you, that people want to hear your story. They want to hear your voice. There's just a disconnect. There's no uh, set paths. So you need to just let it be known to your network what you want to do. You need to be in touch with the people who you want to aspire to work with, to reach out to them, let, let, let them know what your intentions are, because there is space for you. People do want to help you, but you have to let it be known. Mm. Well, you did start recently partnering with Advancing Women Executives. This is a training and development firm for executives. So how does your background in film contribute to your work with women at Fortune 500 companies? You know, it's amazing. When I when I took on this role, I thought that it would be a little bit more of a departure than it was. But my background in storytelling, filmmaking, and acting serves so much because so much of in these boardrooms, so much of 
really selling anything or or getting buy-in on a company level is your ability to tell a story. You know, there's a great quote, a confused mind says no. Hmm. So people are the least bit confused about what your intention is or why you're, you're pushing this, you know, initiative in your company. They'll just say no. So you really have to have kind of that intentionality that, that a filmmaker has, that a storyteller has, where you know what your objective is, and then be able to communicate it in a way that is compelling. So with a lot of these executives, we work on everything from improv to the components of storytelling to being relaxed. Um, meeting the gaze, you know, a lot of women are taught to shrink back and shrink down and being able to, you know, sit up and, and push your chair up and have a seat at the table with confidence is something that will really further a lot of careers, which in that same way helps the global economy because companies that have women at the top outperform their peers that don't. Yeah. Well, you're taking your seat at the table this weekend. <laughs> uh, you've been living out in L.A. for a little while, but you are known to pop back to Georgia every now and again. Yeah. How do you see the industry in Georgia comparing to what's going on uh, on the coasts? Well, I love Georgia because it's so, you know, when I was a child actor there and acting there, it was small. It was very tiny. This was like, you know, 15 years ago. It felt very uh, much more intimate. And now you're starting to see filmmakers, you know, moving to Atlanta to work there. And the the community is so rich and, and not jaded. And that kind of collaboration that Georgia has right now, it's very kind of feels almost underground and, and grassroots initiative for filmmaking. It's very honorable and it, it can, the bigger cities, you know, New York, LA, they definitely have their advantages, but Atlanta has an edge of the, the community of filmmakers that are there. It's just so connected and real. Well, we will be glad to have you back. And thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Jamila Nuruddin. You can see her this weekend at the Macon Film Festival. She's going to be on the panel Making Room at the Table, Women in Georgia's Film Industry, moderated by our colleague Kalina Buller of the Credits Podcast from GPB.